So after Pastor Jonathan presented his talk on the different forms of government, are you now a convinced congregationalist? Did he do a good job and convince you? We'll talk about that as we go on. The, the goal is, do you have a better understanding of what that means? Um, and he, he told you that we'd be looking at scriptures as we talked about this in more depth. So that would be the underlying question. Why at this point, maybe before we get into the, the details of this lesson, would you say you are a congregationalist? If somebody, if your child, um, if a friend came to you and said, hey, is this what you believe about the church? How would you defend that? And what does congregationalism look like? I know we practice it and we've all been in different churches. We've probably practiced it in different ways or seen it done. But what is it supposed to look like? That might be the best question. Now, there's three basic positions. We'll review those really quickly of where the authority in the church should rest. The Episcopalian church government, which includes Anglicans, Methodists, Roman Catholics, among others, give a single bishop authority over a group of churches. So again, like the Roman Catholics, they have one bishop. He's called the Pope for the whole church of Rome across the world. All right, Presbyterian church government gives authority to a group of elders over several churches. All right, and then congregational churches see authority restricted to a singular body or congregation or local church. But there can be differences of how that authority is exercised by its leaders. So let me begin at this point by giving you a definition. I believe that's on your page. Most basically, congregationalism indicates that a church is governed by the local congregation, by its members, as opposed to being ruled or led by another authority such as a pope, bishop, presbytery, or general assembly over the local church. Congregationalism then rests the authority of the church in each local congregation as an autonomous unit with no person or organization that's supposed to be above it except Christ the head. All right, so that's a general definition to start with. Um, are we getting a couple more copies? Thank you very much. Um, one other thing, um, a lot of what I'm presenting to you tonight, um, it's supplemented, um, what I'm presenting, is this little book, Understanding the Congregation's Authority by Jonathan Lehman. I went ahead and I thought this was helpful, especially the first, the last chapters, and then he has a series of questions that I'm going to make available to you. Um, I'll put that on the back table of the auditorium next week. But I think this is something that would help you as you think through this more carefully. Um, it explains it maybe even more in depth than we can get into tonight. All right. So congregational churches then can be governed in a couple of ways. It can be elder-ruled or elder-led. All right. So elder-ruled congregations recognize all authority residing in their elders, their pastors, their spiritual leaders. So those leaders then exercise authority over all matters in the church, and they then inform the congregation of the decisions they've made. Elder-led congregations recognize the Bible giving final authority to the congregation as led by the pastors or elders. So there's a cooperation in using that authority together. Uh, I'll explain how this works as we move forward. This is the polity that we are pursuing, elder-led congregationalism. And um, throughout the rest of this lesson, we'll be talking about what that looks like um, and what that means. All right? 
So people in all these views, though, would start and acknowledge that Jesus and his word is the true final authority. What divides these positions into their differences is who makes the final decisions on important local matters. Things like receiving or uh, putting out members from the church, church discipline, removing a disqualified elder. Who does that? In elder-led congregationalism, in congregational churches, the body has the responsibility to do that. Nobody above them is supposed to do that. Uh, Changing a statement of faith is another example. Approving a budget and so on. So now let's return to the question of are you a congregationalist? And one of the things I want to do here in this section, even as we continue to introduce this, is kind of just address the abuses of this. And just recognize that just because you have a a form of government that we could defend from the Bible doesn't mean we always do it well. And I, I want to dispel the idea that we're saying, okay, if we do this, we won't ever have problems again. We need to continue to remember that. We're a growing body of believers. Um, So why we would choose one polity over another is to say this is what the Bible describes or helps us understand our responsibilities as in the church. So, some believers think that this specific form of church government is foolish. An extreme example. One author states rather brashly that there is more warrant for a church led by unicorns than by majority vote. Now, again, wonderful rhetoric. I'm not sure that's helpful to a discussion like this. But we understand that he has a very negative view of congregationalism, right? Another nationally known pastor and author several years ago wrote an article entitled Congregational Government is from Satan. Here's a couple of his points. And here's the problem. They sometimes ring true. So so listen to his points and see if you agree or have maybe experienced this. Congregational meetings. His first point, congregational meetings are forums for division. They can be. Most of us have been parts of uh, members' meetings where it seems like, I'm not sure what we're actually doing here. You leave feeling like what you just took part in was not very edifying at all, and you have a hard time figuring out, how is this what a church is supposed to be doing? Those kinds of meetings have happened here in our church in the past. But is the problem with the structure? Second, voting is not biblical. Here he's arguing that the church should be led solely by the spiritual leadership, recognized by God, the elders. Now, I want to show you at least one passage where I think it's indicating that they're taking some sort of recognition of what the body, the congregation is deciding. And I I do want to say this. We don't have any command in the Bible to vote, and we're used to that being a democratic nation, so we think of it that way. But I would urge us to not think of voting in that sense. Uh, Here's here's what I'd encourage us to do. When we have a matter before us, and we're going to be called to vote, it would not be most helpful or most beneficial for the whole to wait until that vote to tell us what you're thinking, to be honest. We need to hear as leaders from the body, both positive, negative, with questions before the vote actually happens. That's how we invest in each other's good. When you just wait for the end end vote, you could say no and never try to help the leadership, help other people in the body. You just say, no, I I don't like what we're deciding. 
Or yes, I do like what we're deciding. And you could be giving helpful affirmation to what God is leading the leaders to do. Does that make sense? We don't want to let voting become the least common denominator of, of my involvement. It should be the, the last part of my involvement. Voting is more than just saying yes or no. It should be. Third, spiritual leadership is sometimes unpopular. So this point this person is making is congregationalism is just pursuing what is popular among the church body. And just taking a popularity poll is not a spiritual way to lead a group of God's people. We would agree with this critique. But my problem with this is, is that a fair representation of elder-led congregationalism? I don't think it is. Congregationalism crushes pastors. That's his fourth critique. He quotes a statistic that says pastors move every two to three years on average, and that typically a pastor leaves a church because of eight people who have taken a stand against him. Again, unfortunately, there's some truth to that. But does that mean the system is wrong itself? And then finally, his last point, priesthood, not eldership of all believers. And here he's making the point that all believers are priests before God, according to 1 Peter 2, but that doesn't make them fit to exercise authority in leading the church. But again, I think that's overstating what congregationalism is. Jonathan Lehman, in the little book that I showed you, includes a couple of similar illustrations, one on the less serious side and another more critical. He writes, I think about the Baptist church who divided over the shades, the color of the shades in its sanctuary. Half the church wanted white, the other half wanted brown. So they hired a consultant who recommended tan. (laughs) Very helpful. Now, on the more grieving side, perhaps you've heard of news reports like this of an African-American couple who a day before their wedding received a phone call from their pastor. Would they mind if he married them down the street at the black church's building? Their predominantly white church was threatening to fire him if he performed their wedding in the church building. That's not congregationalism. That's not biblical. In cases like this, these churches have lost sight of their purpose and of Christ's mission. They're far too influenced by democracy in how they view the church's authority, in how they view their authority. Churches that are thinking this way, they think they have to vote on everything, like the color of the shades or the carpet. Church business meetings then feel like town hall debates. Pastors are treated like elected officials. And then what he said of them moving on is going to end up being true. And here's the problem for me is the Bible seems to have very little to do then with that part of the church's life. Do we just set the Bible aside when we come to members meetings? I don't think so. So are these critiques valid? Now, just to make sure we don't go too far astray or you don't hear me saying something I'm not, I want to say I disagree with these critiques pretty strongly. I hope you've heard that. Even though he might be right in recognizing weaknesses or abuses in this form of church government. So our point here is to challenge ourselves. Consider, can I really point to a place in scripture where the entire body has been authorized by Jesus to exercise authority in the church? That's our task tonight. Where do we see this in the word? Who then is responsible for what aspects of authority in the body? So I've intentionally began by raising a lot of questions, even objections to help you enter into the discussion, to begin thinking about it. How do you feel about some of these examples? What do you think? How would you answer these objections? 
I will say we are currently a congregational church, not because of tradition or because it's the most efficient form of church government, but by conviction from the scriptures. Now, as we begin, we have to recognize that Acts can look like an Episcopal or Presbyterian form of church government, depending on how you look at it. But remember, Acts is not a book of church order. That's not what the design of that book is. This was a transitional period of church history with an office that no longer exists, taking much of the leadership. The answer to this point is, how does Acts inform us, is that this first period of church history was foundational, with apostles still exercising leadership over very young churches. They're dealing with a very central issue of changing from Judaism to Christianity. This Jew-Gentile debate is a massive issue that they need help in deciding to protect the gospel. Second, the purpose of Acts is not to provide us with direct information about church structure. Its focus is on the advance of the gospel through the work of the Spirit in spite of all kinds of human opposition. It's proving to us that the gospel will advance through the work of His Spirit. And third, this, again, was a foundational gospel issue. It needed to be settled once for all. It wasn't just a local issue. So what we would argue is congregationalism is seen throughout the New Testament in local churches in four specific ways. Doctrine, or disputes, doctrine, discipline, and discipleship. So the first, the congregation decides disputes. This will have some overlap uh, with discipline. Um, You'll notice the first passage is Matthew 18. We generally think of that as a church discipline passage because of the end. But we'll read verses 15 through 17, all right? If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault. Not the elder, not the pastor, not the deacon. You go. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's wonderful. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them and won't be restored, tell it to the church. Again, the purpose is restoration. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, this is probably the most foundational argument passage for congregationalism. Jesus himself is saying the final authority on matters of dispute is the local body. It's the local body. It's not the pastor, it's not the elders, it's not the deacons. Now notice at the early stages, this is member to member or brother to brother. This is telling us the body has responsibility for this work of discipleship, for this work of restoration, for this work of a wholesome, godly uh, body or organization. Now, certainly, it seems plausible that the elders get involved in the middle stages if issues are not being resolved, but they're not mentioned in this text. And this has to apply to local churches, right? Just do a thought experiment. There is the local, visible church, and there's the universal, invisible church, right? So, Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. Seems best to see that as invisible, universal, Can this text be invisible and universal? Would that make any sense at all? 
Think of the example in Colossians, where there's two ladies that are fighting, and Paul says, you guys get along. So let's say that strife continues, and it came to church discipline. And if we thought this was telling other local, uh, or the universal church, does this mean they're supposed to write over to Ephesus and say, hey, there's two ladies fighting in our local congregation, and we had to put them out. What would the point of that be? It's to tell the body. The body is supposed to do this, putting them outside of itself. It's to let them be to this local body who's interacting with them, who might see them in the community as a Gentile and tax collector. The final authority on the matter is the congregation. There's no authority beyond or above them. There's no presbytery or bishop to appeal to. Look at the next passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 7. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Don't go to a secular court with unbelievers, he's saying. Verse 2, or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? That seems to be focused on the end. If you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases among you right now, is what he's saying? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church, those who don't know God? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? He's saying you have the ability and responsibility to settle these disputes among you. Acts 6, 1 through 2. We know this passage, there's there's division, there's strife rising up among the body. As Gentile widows and Jewish widows, the Gentile widows are being neglected. Who is responsible to take care of this issue? Uh, Verses 1 and 2. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, the uh, Greek-speaking believers, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. Again, this is an example passage in a transitional time. But what we have here is the spiritual leaders working with This massive congregation at this point, even at this point, with apostles present, they say, we're going to refer this to you. Now, again, we got to be careful. I think sometimes we make more of this passage and try to bring more out of it than, than we maybe have here. We don't know how they did that. We don't know how they cooperated together. What we do know is that they worked together, the leaders and the body. They cooperate together. All right. Uh... Next, the congregation is given by Scripture then the authority to resolve disputes. Second, congregations are responsible to protect faithful doctrine. This is a really, really important aspect of congregationalism that I think we overlook. And this one actually, I think, has the most teeth applicationally for us as individual members. You have to be growing because this is a vital role for every member. You protect the gospel as a body. I'll show you what we mean from the text. Congregations are accountable to make sure they do not have false teachers teaching false doctrine. They're held accountable for this. They're rebuked for it when it happens. 
And again, we see in these passages a unified cooperation in this. The elders are teaching the truth. The congregation is hearing the truth and approving of it as saying, yes, that's true. And they work together. They're accountable to each other. Notice what Paul writes in Galatians 1, 6 through 8. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some, these are false teachers, who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now notice where he puts the responsibility. But even if we, and that means Paul and those who are working with him, or an angel from heaven. So think about it. He's thinking of those with the highest authority in human conception. An apostle, Paul himself, an angel, even if those come to you to preach a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Who in this text is responsible to know and defend the gospel? Do you see a pastor in this passage? Or deacons, who is supposed to know this? Who is Paul addressing? Paul tells the church body it's their responsibility to make sure that they are hearing the truth from their teachers. And if they're not, they're to reject and expel those false teachers. Look at 2 Corinthians eleven four, and then following Paul writes again, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you all, so I want to clarify that, you all, Corinthians, received, and if you all accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we're too weak for that. The point is, he's saying, you should not put up with this. This is sad and shameful. Think again in Titus, how Paul's commanding Titus to establish and put in place elders who will teach sound doctrine. Now, you might think, well, that's written to Titus. So that's Titus's responsibility. Well, then why do we have the letter? Right? Why did that letter go around to all the churches? They were supposed to recognize this and affirm it and cooperate with it and submit to their leaders. The body was supposed to recognize it when they saw sound teaching. Philippians 3, 2, look, 2 and 3, look out for the dogs. You, Philippians, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying you need to know who you are and what you believe. Acts 17.11, this is an example. These are people who are receiving the word well. They received it with eagerness, and they're examining the scriptures themselves. That's the spirit the body is supposed to have if it's healthy and protecting its doctrine. And then finally, 2 Timothy 4.3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. These congregations have fallen into serious error, looking now for teachers who only suit their desires. Right? And Paul is saying, this is wrong for you, congregation. Third, congregations are responsible to practice church discipline. Who carries this out? It's the church. 
It's not the pastor's role, ultimately the elders or the deacons. Certainly, we've seen this practiced in our church. Certainly, they do much of the legwork. But ultimately, it's not up to your pastors to decide who is removed. So even in that process, we want you to be involved before the time to vote comes. You are encouraged from Matthew chapter 18 to be pursuing that brother. You are encouraged to be talking with your elders and pastors and saying, what's going on with them? How can I help? How could I reach out to this erring brother or sister? The church body is responsible to protect the purity of their profession of Christ. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, church of Corinth, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you, church, are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed, put out from among you. You're to to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, for the purpose that a spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And he concludes in verse 13, God judges those outside. You purge the evil person from among you. In doing this, the church is saying we can no longer give credibility to this person's profession. They won't turn from their sin that characterizes unbelievers. Lastly, congregations determine church membership. We call that discipleship. 1 Corinthians 5 teaches the body has responsibility to determine who's out. But 2 Corinthians 2 teaches us it's the membership that uh, the congregation that teaches them or is to receive a restored brother back again. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 8. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Some think that this is the same man from 1 Corinthians 5, having been restored by repentance, is is potentially being brought back into the church. He says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What could that possibly mean? That means they know how many members there are, and more than half of them voted for this, right? That has to be what that means. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So this is Paul's instruction to receive back into their care one who'd sinned and had been put out, out, but who's now repentant. Notice how that punishment was decided. It was by the majority. Paul does not here command them to do this as an apostle. Certainly he's an apostle, but he's not a member of that local church. So he urges them for their growth, for their health to take this action. He urges it, doesn't command it. So these New Testament passages then tell us what things the congregation should be exercising authority in and what things they are to be trusting their spiritual leaders to lead in. So with this understanding as a body, as your current spiritual leaders, we've been limiting what we vote on to five main areas. Membership, who's in and who's out. Leadership, the body participates in and affirms its leaders. Our doctrine... The body is responsible to affirm and defend our statement of faith. That's what it looks like um, now. So these three areas, as we've looked at these texts, are clearly spelled out in the New Testament as the responsibility of the congregation. But we add two more members or two other matters for reasons of prudence. Budget. The body needs to participate in how our funds are promoting the gospel. And again, this is a partnership. We want to work together to say, what is our mission? 
What has the king called us to do? Let's work on that together to make sure we're on mission. And then five, rules. The body should agree up front how we will be governed by our constitution. There again, it's a matter of prudence saying this is how we are going to work together. Um, Now, how is God designed for the authority structure of local churches, his body to help believers grow? I think this is the point that I am concerned about because I think when we talk about church government, it can seem like, yeah, if we get the forms right. And God did this on purpose to help us grow and encourage each other. This isn't about who gets to be the decider of all the things in the church, who gets to exercise authority as if that's the thing we're to aspire to. No, no. This is for us to glorify our God in the way that we work together to promote him and his causes. So elder-led congregationalism places the leaders and the followers into a relationship where they're seeking to build each other up for the glory of God. This is a cooperation, right? I'll show you what we mean. The elders are responsible to train and teach and disciple God's people. So we read passages in 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock of God among you. You need to know your people, Acts 20, and they need to know you. This can't be done as some executive sitting off in an office somewhere saying, this is best for the organization. This is shepherding. This is service. This is care. This is to happen relationally as pastors care for the body. They're not just exercising decision-making authority. Certainly they make decisions week after week. What should go in the bulletin? All these kinds of things. Minor, minor matters that we should not be asking the congregation about. That would waste all of our time, right? And you've entrusted us to do those things. That is rather a small part of their job. Our job is to shepherd and disciple and train and raise up more leaders. That's our job. The congregation in response then, they participate, they disciple and support and participate in building up and maturing the body as a whole. And there's a beautiful passage, we've looked at it before. Ephesians 4 gives us a job description for both the spiritual leaders who teach and equip and the body who serves. So Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Those are word workers. They communicate God's word to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see the job descriptions? What are the elders primarily supposed to do? Teach the word. Train God's people. Help them do the work. And the body does the work. The congregation, every church member, is to take responsibility for other church members, helping them on their way to heaven. We help disciple each other. You cannot leave that just up to three men in your church. You cannot do that. It won't get done. You cannot leave it up to three men to evangelize Greer. It won't get done. We do the work of the ministry together. We're a part of the body, and yet we're encouraging and leading and equipping the body to do that work. We've talked about this before in Ephesians 4, 13 through 16. You can see it there, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and then Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The point there is this is a mission given by God to every disciple, not just your pastors. So the application for us tonight is in order for the church family to be able to do this job, you as a body must know the gospel and be passionate about it. You must study it. 
You must protect the gospel's ministry in your church. You must work for the gospel's progress in the lives of your fellow believers and members and with outsiders. Jonathan Lehman concludes, The gathered church possesses authority because Jesus expressly authorizes it and because he makes every believer responsible for proclaiming and protecting his gospel and his gospel people. So do you see how we have moved when we talk about congregational uh, congregationalism biblically. We've moved out of this, you know, running these meetings as a democracy, as a town hall meeting, to we have a very high and holy calling before our king. This isn't just making decisions about what color things are in the building. This is about promoting and protecting and defending the gospel and helping other believers walk with him. Who trains the members to do this vitally important job? Who teaches them the gospel and how it applies to their lives? Who trains them to discern between true professions of faith and false ones? Ephesians 4.11 would answer that this is the purpose of men who teach the word. So elders disciple and train the disciples, the body, and congregations do the work of the ministry. I like how Lehman puts this little um, mathematical equation if it, as, as it were. <coughs> Elder leadership... And congregational rule equals discipleship, right? When practiced biblically, elder-led congregationalism, he writes, is a gospel powerhouse. It guards the gospel, matures Christian disciples, strengthens the church, fortifies its holy integrity and witness, and equips the congregation to love their neighbors better in word and deed. Now, to be the kind of member that God intends you to be, you have to be growing in the word and in the gospel personally. Then you need to be finding ways to help other believers grow in the same way. You need to be around regularly. That's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. You're to gather so that you can build up and encourage in good works and in love. This isn't just showing up and filling a seat. You can show up and not forsake the assembly and still disobey that verse, right? You're to be investing personally. This isn't just participating in the programs that the church has. The church is God's people. Suba Road is God's people, not the programs we have on Sunday and Wednesday and whatever else we meet in, whatever other day we meet on. So who, who are you investing in? How are you committed to their growth? Every member is to be eager to invest in the life of another believer, faithfully practicing the one another's, especially loving others just as you've been loved by Christ. Now, I want to give you a little uh, plug or, or tidbit or help you think about how your pastors, your elders, are to be thinking about future leaders. As the church leadership invests themselves in the lives of others, these are the kinds of people we're looking for to take up positions of leadership. We're looking for other leaders who are right now busy serving other members wherever the needs arise. They're not waiting on anything. They're not waiting for a position. They're not waiting for somebody to tell them. They're looking for needs, and they're getting busy. We're looking for other leaders who are busy teaching others the Bible, one-on-one, in small groups, as teachers of Sunday school classes. And as we see that happening, and the body growing around the exercise of those gifts, of serving and teaching, we may be seeing God raise up another deacon or another elder 
to help us continue then to train the rest of the body. That's how it's supposed to work. It's not, well, we have these positions. Who would you like to fill these positions? We're looking for busy, busy members, active members who are serving. We're looking for those who are engaged, proactive, and are humble servants who are not sitting back waiting for this open position, but who are instead loving other members, serving them, no matter what they're called in the church. Title, no title, they're a member, and they recognize that role is very valuable and very important for them to be acting on. Do you see how God's plan for the authority structure in the church to function looks very different from those very bad examples we had at the beginning? That's not congregationalism biblically. This is about discipleship under the authority of King Jesus. That's what we want our congregationalism to look like. That is what would honor our king. All right, we have about uh, 12, 13 minutes to answer questions. I will do that to the best of my ability. And if I don't know something, I'll study it and try and give you an answer next week. All right? Yes, ma'am. I think so. I think it would change like some of the mechanisms, but here's what I would propose. Let's break up that 2,000 and go spread ourselves out. Because here's here's the big key in that. I think there are other elders among that 2,000 that can teach the word and raise up more people. There are thousands and thousands of people in Greenville County who do not name the name of Christ. So let's break up. Let's divide and conquer. It is not about building a kingdom called Super Road. So I think that would be the wisest way. That's the way historically we've, we've been thinking. We, we actually don't want to grow that big. If we outgrew this building, we'd say it's time to divide and conquer probably. That's a great question. Good. Yes, Dave? What will a transition look like? So is it going to be like X8? Yeah, that's a really good question. So what we're aiming at is by the end of this year, that's kind of the um, calendar schedule that we put ourselves on. Um, So we're looking, working, talking with those who would potentially be elders in the future. We're encouraging you to be paying attention to who that might be. Again, we want to move slow with who those men are. Um, But yes, by the end of the year, we'd we'd transition them over, clarify the roles, um, because essentially... We are already um, encouraging our spiritual leaders to function as spiritual leaders. We just need to clarify what exactly they do, if that makes sense. So I think we've, we've been working toward this slowly and carefully over time. So it won't be this just like herky-jerky. I've told many people, and, and I want you to hear this. If you came on a Sunday morning now, and let's say, by God's grace, at the end of the year we vote on this and it passes in a, in a year from now. If you sat in our worship service, I don't think you'd see anything different at all. Just we're adding men into these specific roles to help with deaconing, serving, and help with eldering, shepherding. So, good question. Yeah, somebody else? Yes, Kelly. How do you see the um, three staff pastors that we have right now being helped? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think if we understand that the staff pastors have kind of the day-to-day responsibilities, 
And on top of that, then, the discipling responsibilities. I think um, what, we've, what we've said before is that it expands the shepherding capabilities. Um, there is, like I said, there's no way that three guys can do everything discipleship-wise that needs to be happening. We, we see, uh, we have huge desire to be discipling young couples in how they're living out their marriage. We have desires to help parents. We have des- desires to help those who are retired exercise that time and those responsibilities and those opportunities well. But we're really limited. You know, you only have three guys with so many hours. And as you expand that elder team who's speaking the word into each other's lives, that shepherding capability rises immensely. Yeah, so that's good. So the day-to-day things, if you're just thinking executive things, that, that, isn't, that doesn't change. Where we feel like we want help is not getting the things ready for Sunday and all that kind of thing. It's shepherding souls toward eternity. That's it. Yeah, good question. Yeah, Annette? Sorry. No, you're good. Like Paul had Timothy and Titus, and is there a way that Super Road is planning to kind of formally get apprentice elders in to um, walk the walk and just learn yeah. this? Yeah, yeah. So we, we'd love that. There's a sense where <clears throat> we're transitioning. I, I sense that already. I've shared that with our deacons um, before. I think as elders grow, what's going to naturally happen is they grow enough that they need to be sent out so that they can do this work. Um, I will continue to be the primary preaching pastor, um, but as you see, we're using other men to do some of that, but there are men that are going to rise up among us that need to be preaching and using that gift week after week, Um, so the only way to do that is send them out. Um, There was a podcast uh, we talked about as pastors a few um, weeks ago. It's a pastor's talk, and they talk about red, is it red light, Jonathan? Red dot and green dot churches. And the red dot churches, when there's a spiritual need, they're calling for people outside the church to come and speak to them. And green dot churches are those that are healthy, and they're exporting their health to other churches. They're helping raise up other churches. That is what's happening in Acts, and that's clear. I mean, think about the church of Antioch sending out Paul and Barnabas. And they, they plant churches that grow healthy and send out more. That, that's missions. That's, that's what we're supposed to do around the world. We're raising up more men who can teach the word and build up a congregation, and that just keeps replicating. We want to be a church-planting church eventually. That should be every church's desire if we're following the New Testament. But that means we've got to grow up and be healthy and get good at finding elders and training them and then sending them out and keeping them here and doing both at the same time. Yeah, good question. Good. Yes, ma'am. They use their gifts wherever they absolutely can, wherever they can. Am I, are you asking about deaconesses? No. Okay. <laughs> I'll do a lesson on deacons and we can talk about that. <laughs> I'm talking about the Yeah, so I think, so as I would read Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, that's every member's responsibility. Um, Titus 2, this is a burden for us. There's, there's specific things in Titus 2 that the older women are supposed to do to help the younger women. And if, if we're doing this right, I want to help the older women by saying, hey, here's a younger woman that needs help. Are you ready? Are you ready to disciple them? Can you partner with them and help them grow up? There's actually things that we're talking about as, as a staff among our spiritual leaders to say, this, this needs to be happening now. We have needs. Um, so I think that's a key piece. When we see our role as discipling other members, 
It doesn't matter gender. When are all the, when are all the needs filled? Well, only, until, only when we get to heaven, right? Because we all need to keep growing. And part of the God's growth process is you need other members to do that in your life, speak into your life. So does that answer your question? Somebody else? Yes, sir. Is there a visual out there that would show, like, this is our current polity, this is the breakdown, these are the elders, these are all the deacons, and then this is what we're moving to? Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. Did your graph, Jonathan, the last time, it was, it was more general than that. You're thinking, like, what's our current structure right now? Could we have a... Yeah, like, I'm thinking, like, I know who, whose care group I'm in. Yeah. Like a deacon, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we could put that together, sure. Yeah, we generally like announce that at a certain point and then the, the deacons, every, every member of the body can have three levels of care, but I'm not sure everybody would know how that works out and it might be helpful to see and we explain that. We explain that in new members classes and things like that. But every member falls under um, the pastors and deacons together, divide up the membership and we each have about 15 to 20 members that we're giving oversight to, regularly having touch points. We've put them in um, groups where we're interacting with them, often regularly. So if your life group leader's a deacon, you're probably in his care group. Um, life group leaders is another level. Um, and then there's um, community group or Sunday school class leaders. Um, when, we first, when I first came, it was kind of, we just tried to divide up the congregation and it was hit and miss. And you might know your deacon well or pastor well, and you might not. Um, so we've really tried to make that a little closer, um, and that's where, you've, that's where we've really seen our men step up and grow and do a lot of the care that has been so encouraging to the pastors. It isn't left up to just us to make the hospital visits or deliver meals, or it really is the Lord is spreading that work out, and that has been immensely, immensely encouraging. So, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, we can work on that. That's good. Somebody else? What time we got? We're close. Can handle one more. Anybody with a burning question? Do we understand congregationalism well enough? We're not scared off about it. <laughs> Some bad examples out there. Um, I'm grateful for where we've where we've come and how God has worked, provided unity, stability. He's raised up a healthier body um, and healthy leaders. So I'm grateful for you and how that has been working. All right, last chance for a question tonight. Yes, Sinjin. So, if we roll this out, do you see, um, like, having a lot of elders available to ask questions, making votes on things easier? Because you can, like, talk to that person more readily? Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things we're, we're wanting to do is, as we work on the Constitution, is give more time for some of the more significant decisions. Um, like, some of our bigger decisions, even in bringing in a new pastor, um, Right now, our constitution says two weeks. Like when we bring on a lay elder, we've expanded it to a month. And part of that, again, it's the intention of moving past just the hand raising, yes or no. Um, that's, a, that's a written ballot anyway. But the point is, you need to get to know that man. You need to be talking to your current leaders about your confidence in his coming leadership or your lack of confidence. And if there's an issue that you know about, maybe you need to talk to him and, and get that resolved. Maybe you need to talk to the current leaders and say, could you help me understand why you think this, this man is ready to be a lay elder, a lay pastor? So that, that's part of it. And then when it comes up to needs, yeah, what, what happens is, as I've talked to other pastors who've worked on this, 
where they say they're encouraged is when they come to a point of saying, um, people aren't just coming to me with their spiritual questions, with their needs, spiritual needs or crises. They're coming to other elders and they're seeing them fully as their pastors and they're getting help. So that shepherding has then expanded. So yes, that's exactly our goal. Yeah, absolutely. Good question. All right, let's close with prayer um, and we'll be dismissed this evening, all right? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your guidance, even in the practical matters of how we're organized as a church. We want to do this carefully, hearing your word well, examining it thoughtfully, intentionally, uh, looking to see how you would guide us, how you would encourage us to structure our body so that we can care and shepherd the way that you shepherd us. Lord, we will never live up to that standard, and yet our desire is to simply follow the wisdom you've provided to us and point one another to Jesus Christ as we seek to grow more and more into his likeness. Lord, give us confidence in your word. Encourage us. Help us to encourage other members in the body who have questions about this. Lord, thank you for the good unity that we're experiencing in the midst of such a change, and help us to be wise and careful and patient with one another as we continue. In Jesus' name, amen.